Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, as we're all acutely aware, we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis, as it's called. That'll mean different things to different groups and demographics in society, but practically everybody in some form or another is being impacted. Over the last decade or so, I suppose we've come through two major crises as a country. First of all, we had the recession, which followed the economic collapse in 2008. And more recently, of course, like the rest of the world, we've had to negotiate a way through the COVID-19 pandemic, something that was completely unique and for some terrifying. But we haven't had a cost of living crisis in more than a generation and it presents different challenges. And once again, it's those who are least equipped to bear the brunt of it who will in all likelihood face the biggest imposition on their lives. As of now, it looks like this crisis, and uh, I should say here that my guest takes issue with that description, which we'll get to in a minute, but it looks like it's going to persist for a while. So what will that mean to live in the shadow of ballooning prices and all that entails over a prolonged period? My guest today has some views on that, views informed by his own experience during the last time the country went through something like this back in the 70s and 80s. Those of you who are clued in enough to read the Irish Examiner on a regular basis will know that Fergus Finlay writes an always engaging column every Tuesday. Back in the 70s, Fergus was a union official at the heart of negotiating on behalf of members who needed pay rises in order to keep up with rising prices. He was also, at that time, raising a young family and felt keenly the kind of worries that are now preoccupying those to the pin of their collar today. A few years later, he was part of a government grappling with the whole issue and eventually inflation and the resultant fallout was to some extent satisfactorily addressed in the mid-1980s. Following a career behind the scenes in politics, Fergus subsequently worked for a number of years as CEO of the children's charity Bernardo's, which again gave him an insight into the challenges faced by some of the poorest and most vulnerable in society and their children. In recent weeks, in his column, Fergus has been writing about the lessons to be learned from those times and how those lessons might be applied to the problems facing government and society as a whole today. Fergus, you're very welcome. Thanks, Mick. Thanks very much. Fergus, to get the terminology out of the way initially, and you, you wrote very cogently there a few weeks ago about, I suppose I, I might describe it as taking issue with the phrase crisis. So when is a crisis not a crisis? Well, I think a crisis isn't a crisis when it's not really amenable to a quick fix, when it's not a turning point, you know, or a, a fever about to break, as it were. I think this is a battle or a war. Um, and I I think the worst thing about it is that it's going to get worse. Um, we're, we're not in a crisis that can be easily or steadily fixed. And I, I the, one of the ways I tried to illustrate that was when we got, Figures from the Central Statistics Office saying that the cost of living had now gone to 8% and that that was the worst in 38 years. Um, that means it was the worst since 1984. What those figures didn't say was that 1984 was a kind of turning point because we'd had 11 years of inflation 
up to 1984, where wages were out of control, prices were out of control, interest rates were out of control, people were running to stand still constantly. And one of the things that happened was that Ireland, in those years, became a country to leave. There was no possibility of keeping up with the rate of inflation in those years. And I'm terrified, to be honest, that we're at the start of a long period again uh, where we're going to have to fight this same battle and this same war. So I think it's a very valid point. It's nearly as if you're suggesting a crisis suggests that there is something that can be done and it's just a question of doing it as opposed to grappling and uh, getting ready to face into something that's unfortunately going to persist for a while. I mean, there are some things that need to be done quickly. There's no doubt about that. But I think that the truth of it is we're going to have to wait and see how bad it gets before we can begin to fix it. Um, It is inevitable, I think, for example, inevitable. It may not be desirable, I don't know, but it's inevitable that there's going to start being a wage spiral now, that people and unions are going to have to start demanding very significant pay increases of a kind that we haven't, you know, words we haven't uttered, like 10% and 12% pay increases um, in order to kind of catch up with the rate of inflation. But the minute that happens, you begin a kind of chasing your tail sort of exercise where the wage increases lead to a further spike in prices and the further spike in prices lead to a further demand for a pay increase uh, and and so on. And, And sooner or later, we'll all have to sit down together under the leadership of the government, I guess, and work out some way of moderating all that. Now, we can't do this, I think, unless we do it together. And I'm I'm terrified that things... Because, like, a lot of your listeners and a lot of readers of The Examiner, I know from the tweets I get and the Facebook comments I get when I write in The Examiner, a lot of people are an awful lot younger than me, so they don't remember the, the, um, the, the disaster that was the 70s and 80s. Um, but I do, and... Um, you know, it drove the economy downhill uh, in a way that was just absolutely vicious. I, t- I tell you one quick story. I'm, I started working for uh, Gareth Fitzgerald's government in 1983. I was living in Cork at the time. Um, almost around the time I started working there, the Veromi Cork dockyard closed down. A couple of months after that, Fords of Cork closed down. A couple of months after that, Dunlops in Cork closed down and Cork became almost overnight, almost like a desert. Um, It was a complete and absolute disaster. Now, I, for my sins, um, was working in Dublin and living in Cork and had just bought a house in Cork. um, And I had my first experience as a result of everything that had happened. And it was all triggered by inflation um, the, the oil crisis that we had then and, and so on in the 80s. It was all triggered by that. Um, I had my first experience of negative equity because I had to sell a house in Cork to buy a house in Dublin and I sold it so badly I, it took me 12 years of renting in Dublin before I could buy a house in Dublin. And that was the immediate consequence of an inflationary spiral that impacted terribly on economic growth at the time. Um, and actually, funny enough, Cork was probably the most badly hit in the whole country. It became a huge unemployment black spot. And it started It started with inflation and it just grew and grew. And that's the kind of thing we have to try and avoid. Yeah, I have to say myself, um, I was a teenager. My family moved there when I was 16, moved to Cork, Fergus. And that Paul, as you describe it, that hung over the city, friends of mine, their fathers particularly, had been um, 
had ended up out of work as a result of those closures. And there's no doubt, I know exactly what you're saying there in terms of for whatever, just, just those, I suppose those various things coming together ensured that Cork was a major black spot in those years. Just bringing it back a few years before that, um, we know the war in Ukraine, not exclusively responsible, but to a large extent responsible for what we're seeing today. Back in the 70s, again, there was also a war, wasn't there, that kind of tipped off things in, in terms of that spiral? Yeah, there was a war between Israel and the Arab states uh, in the 70s, um, and the Arab states um, reacted to that war as a kind of retaliatory thing, dramatically cutting oil supply, dramatically. Um, a, a name that none of us had ever heard became a household name. The name was OPEC, uh, and there were sheiks and Arabs and uh, fellas in, in uh, you know, gowns and headdresses and so on, dictating uh, not just the price of oil, but how much oil uh, the West would get. And people would queue for overnight for a pound's worth of oil. But it was the thing that just started uh, the economy going mad. In the, it was 1973, 74, something, sometime like that. And that was followed immediately after um, by an inflationary spiral which became a, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We couldn't shake it off ever. It started with a war in the Middle East, which led to dramatic reductions in oil. And that's the echo of today, I, I guess, that, uh, that, we're, that we're seeing again. But it was, it was astonishingly frightening, astonishingly frightening. If, you, if your dad, because in 73, it was my dad's car I was driving, um, uh, and one of the conditions on which I got the load of the car was that I was willing to queue for three and a half hours uh, to get three gallons of petrol for him. In today's um, culture of uh, everything being instantaneous, uh, you can imagine. Oh, stop, stop. But the other thing that happened at the time, I was a trade union official at the time and I worked mostly um, uh, in the public service. I worked for, for uh, initially for uh, people in the health service and they would be all sort of non-nursing um, personnel in, in uh, hospitals around the country. And then subsequently I worked for uh, local authority uh, personnel. And in those years, you were under terrible pressure to secure the maximum pay increase that you could get. But everybody was in such debt because of inflation that they wouldn't accept a pay increase unless there was six months back money attached to it. Um, you, if you came out of a negotiation and said... The, big, the good news is we've got 14% of a pay rise. The bad news is it takes effect next week. Um, you'll be held out of the room. Everybody was utterly and absolutely dependent on the little lump sum that the back money would represent. Um, and of course, that was contributing in those days. It, it may not be quite so bad now, but it, that was contributing in those days to the spiral. The 14% pay increase was followed by, you know, a 7 or 8% increase in prices, uh, which triggered off the next round of pay demands. Two things that strike me, Fergus, just in terms of comparisons. One is the, the state of the economy today versus that, say, in the mid-70s and its capacity in, in other ways to address it in some way that it, it's not going to make things too much uh, heading towards a recession. That's one element. And the other element to it, in terms of, as you said, your experience as a union negotiator, do you believe that, for example, unions going in today, quite obviously they want the best for their members, they're under serious pressure because their members are, but on the basis of what's happened over the last 30 years, would they be approaching the whole issue with a, a broader framework than might have been the case back in the 70s? 
Yes, uh, yes, they will. Uh, there, there will be a broader, a much broader perspective. And provided that perspective is matched on the employer side by the government and, and so on, you look at what's happening in the UK now, um, where, you know, rail workers had a series of legitimate demands and were basically just told to hump off by a government that wouldn't talk to them, wouldn't listen to them. And now the rail workers' strike has been followed by a strike in uh, the airports, followed by a strike in uh, the, the legal profession. And that looks likely to spread and spread and spread. And part of the reason for that is not because the unions are uh, saying the devil take the hindmost, we don't care what's happening in the rest of the economy. It's because there is no dialogue. Um, and and that's, that's what could happen here if there was no dialogue. I mean, I think our trade union movement is a very sophisticated movement um, that, that puts a huge amount of work into understanding the broader influences in the economy. And I also think we're lucky in other ways. Um, uh, when, when, when we got into our financial trouble back in the day, uh, when, uh, when the banks collapsed and all that, we were dealing with, you know, a European Central Bank, uh, German uh, monetarist approaches and so on, that was quite happy to screw us to the wall in what they saw as the broader interest. One of the things that COVID did was it meant that everyone had to borrow. Germany as much as Ireland uh, had to borrow. So the 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 the, the tight belt uh, of, you know, seven or eight years ago is not quite so tight now and there is a, a bit more capacity. But that's not in, de- in, you know, that's not indefinite either. Sooner or later, somebody's going to have to say, we can't borrow anymore. We're, we're, we're done. We've done as much as we can. Um, so we're walking that tightrope all the time. And what about the general state of the economy in terms of, look, the, the, these growth figures can be totally illusory and, and, and can be completely off the mark in, in terms of what's really happening. But notwithstanding that, are we as an economy in general terms in a better position to withstand some of this than was the case in the 70s? Yes, the economy is growing now. It was shrinking then. Um, uh, we have a highly uh, educated workforce now it was much less so in those days. I mean, when all this started in the 70s, we were only, I think, six or seven years after the introduction of free second-level education. Um, uh, and, and, you know, when we sent people abroad in those days, it was to labouring jobs. When we send people abroad now, it is to IT and banking jobs. Um, so we're, we're in a much better position to provide, there's no doubt about that, but there's still going to have to be a huge amount of imagination um, and, and resourcefulness uh, to try and keep the show on the road. It, it, if the first sign of, I mean, I remember, and it's not that long ago, I remember the before the banks collapsed, I remember the first time the ESRI um, used the word recession in a quarterly commentary. Um, it was around the time that uh, Brian Lenehan was finance minister and the banks were, you know, we had bank guarantees and we had all that kind of thing. And they they put out a warning Within days of that, six public-private partnerships that were going to regenerate a significant part of Dublin collapsed. Within days, the the private end of it walked away within days. Now, they didn't walk away out of evil reasons. They walked away because they could see the writing on the wall. The minute things start to turn down, they will turn down very rapidly. That's that's what I'm saying. And and that's the big fear. At the moment, the economy is going gangbusters. Um, uh, you know, wiser people than I would have worries about 
our reliance on foreign direct investment and and uh, all that kind of thing. But but nevertheless, the economy is growing and we can handle a lot. Um, the minute that slows down, the minute that slowdown appears, we're all in very, very big trouble. One other aspect to uh, the issue, and as I said, you worked as a union organiser at the time, albeit mainly within in terms of the public sector. But it strikes me that the private sector this time around, now notwithstanding there are some very high paying jobs and there's the tech sector, but outside of that, services, the gig economy, for example, all that. Union representation very low. now compared to then is very low, isn't it? Very low. And there has been a huge casualisation of labour, the gig economy, as, as you say. And, and the number of thousands and thousands of uh, young people uh, working um, for, uh, for the minimum wage or for just above the minimum wage, um, is, it's, it's, it's frightening. And they're not organised. They're not protected. They're not in a position to defend themselves. Um, I... I I know one young person, uh, I know a lot of young people, but I know one young person who is going without sleep, that may be a slight exaggeration, but has taken on extra hours in the shop where she works in order to keep the wool from the door. She hasn't got a pay increase for 10 years, I would say, uh, but there are extra hours available and there have been a lot of extra hours available since the pandemic ended. And she's working as close to the round of the clock as she can stay on her feet just to keep the wool from the door. And I, I don't think she's alone by any stretch of the imagination. And one of the tragedies, I think, of the last 20, 30 years in Ireland has been the virtual collapse of trade union organisation outside the, the broad public sector. It's still strong there, but everywhere else it's very weak. Yeah, and as you say, people without that kind of, of collective representation are, are going to be more vulnerable to the type of... Um so-called headwinds, as they call yeah. them, that, 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 that hit us. Fergus, you also, you wrote recently as well, when you were writing about this, was um, your own experiences. You said you were a union organiser, you know, presumably relatively stable job and all. Yet, during all this period, you used to lay awake sometimes at night, even wondering where you get new shoes for your children. Well, I can still remember... It was a hugely humiliating experience. I mean, trade union officials were not well paid in those days. You know, it was, yes, it was a steady job with a lot of hours and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, travel around the place. But it was it was something close to the average industrial wage in terms of a salary. Uh, and I can remember standing outside a shop in Wicklow Street um, uh, when my three children at the time were starting school and all needed new shoes. And my wife went into the shop and sort of, I stood outside. I didn't have the nerve to go in. She had my credit card. Remember, we had credit cards in those days. We didn't have debit cards. We had credit cards. She had my credit card um, in her hand. And she came out um, after 20 minutes or so and said, uh, it ain't working. It's not working. It's not paying. It's not. And she had to go back in and tell one of the kids that we'd buy her shoes next month. Um, we were, the card would cover two pairs of shoes. It wouldn't cover the third pair. And I can still remember the, the kind of the humiliation of that. Um, uh, and um, and I, I, I felt terrible afterwards that it was, I kind of subjected my wife to that humiliation because I was afraid to go into the shop. Um, but that was, that was just one experience and thousands and thousands and thousands of people um, uh, suffered those experiences. And what kills me, you know, is that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of families right today, right this month and next month, who will have exactly the same kind of choices to make as we get ready to go back to school this year. Uh, because none of those prices have come down. There's very, very little support available for that 
for that kind of thing. And it is a huge burden. I, I'm not one of those people uh, who advocates that the budget should have, the government should have a mini budget every month to try and keep abreast. But there is one thing that they can do, and it has to be done now, it has to be done well before October. They can make school books free. Um, they can help families to buy shoes for going back to school. That's something that I, I, it's, I've campaigned about this for I, as long as I've been in Bernardo's because we did all the research um, and we did all the sums. We went down, I've, I've asked every minister for education um, uh, going back to the mid, oh, 20 years anyway, to look at this and to try and do something about it. To eliminate the cost of school books, school transport, um, uh, and and the voluntary contribution that parents have to to pay, and which of course we all know isn't voluntary at all, to eliminate that entirely would cost about eight between eighty and a hundred million. It's petty cash in terms of the Department of Education's budget, but if it isn't done now, it's too late to do it in uh, in the budget, in, in even if they're thinking about doing it. Uh, and I've I've campaigned again and again and again for them to do it. I can't understand why they don't, because apart from anything else, it would be a wildly popular thing to do. But there are 100,000 mothers in Ireland terrified of what August is going to bring in terms of, you know, school books and, and shoes and school uniforms and all the other things that kids need. They need those things, by the way, for their constitutional right to a free education. Absolutely. Which and it does joke. seem, as you lay it out there, Fergus, we, we constantly hear the refrain, uh, over the last number of months about targeting those most in need. Something like that, on that basis, Christ, it seems like a no-brainer altogether. Well, well it would help every every mother, including, you know, well-to-do mothers, but it would... Yeah, but the main trust of it the would... Impact, the impact would be enormous. I, I, It's a weird thing, Mick, and I'd love I'd love some time to try and figure out, because when, when we put figures to the Department of Education some years ago, we were told that the figures we had calculated were exactly right. And we know that it is a pittance in terms of the overall Department of Education budget. But there's something apparently in our education system about the autonomy of schools that can't be interfered with. Now, I think it's interfered with day after day after day. I think, it, you know, admission legislation, admissions legislation and so on has dismantled an awful lot of that. But for some reason, they will not. In, what they need to do is send a check to every headmaster. Now, I know, I know I'm simplifying it, but they need to send a check to every headmaster and say, get the books your kids need and have them waiting for them when they come to school. I, and, if, if, and if our kids were going to school in Newry, the books would be waiting for them. If they were going to school in Islington, the books would be waiting for them. In every jurisdiction on our, you know, couple of islands, free books are waiting for kids in school. Um, here, not a chance. Um, and and not just free books, but um, don't get me... No, I, I, I'll divert away from the main topic altogether if you get me started on the subject of workbooks. I don't know if if you're in a position where you have to supply workbooks for anybody. Um, but they're, I described them once as the creation of the devil. They're a money spinner um, that have absolutely no educational value whatsoever. That is definitely true. It's interesting, actually, just not getting away from the topic either, but when you raise it, it, is the whole thing, is it linked back to our system of education that handed over so much of it to religious and religious did a huge amount of good in education absolutely but that business of autonomy and that is that where that comes from or whatever but one way or the yeah, other Yeah it is it is uh, these battles have been fought in the courts and they've been fought everywhere our constitution says that it is the responsibility of the state 
to provide for the education of the children, not to provide the education of the children. So that word for has been fought over in the courts many, many times. But what it basically means is we'll, we'll put up the money, but we won't dictate how it's done. Yeah. And yeah, of all times, I mean, obviously, and, and to your former position in Bernardo's, naturally you'd have been lobbying it, for, but of all times for something like that to um, to be considered, you would have to have thought in terms of the... Of the, the what, it's a no-brainer in all sorts of ways. Stress. Like, it's a, no, a no-brainer in all sorts of ways. The only yeah. problem with it, it has to happen now. That's the only yeah. thing that I would say to the government, forget the business of an October budget, do this one thing now. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. No, tell me one other aspect to things, again, making some comparisons or comments. Interest rates. Back then, Fergus, we were talking about up to 20%. Um, one thing that would strike me quite obviously that, that just couldn't happen today on the basis of house prices and uh, that sort of thing. But do you foresee as well that we're now in for a prolonged period of incrementally rising interest rates and everything that brings with it? I, I think as long as in, if, if inflation isn't got under control very quickly, and I don't think there's any possibility of that, I think interest rates will be within 12 to 18 months from now, interest rates will be between 2 and 2.5% and higher than they are now. Um, and that will provoke a huge crisis uh, among particularly young people who have borrowed every single last penny that they can uh, to put a roof over their heads. Um, I mean, it was, it was tough enough in my day. Interest rates were, you know, I mean, I said in that piece, interest rates at one point went, um, you know, 17, 18%. In fact, once they went higher, and I'll tell you that story in a minute, um, uh, but it, it it was an interest rate on a much smaller capital. Do you know, yeah. like when I bought my first house, I paid £11,000 for it. Um, I, You know, young people now are, are paying, you know, 300000 And, you know, 2% to 300000 is an awful lot more than 5% or 6% of 11000 I I made one terrible property mistake, which was that um, I bought my... A house. I, having, I rented. I told you that we had rented a house after for years after coming to Dublin um, because of the negative equity thing. Um, eventually, I bought a house in 1992, um, and I thought I'd done very well. Uh, I had been renting. The rent was 350 a month. My first mortgage payment was 700, and I was ready for that. Right, I knew that it was going to go up, and of course, there was tax relief on the mortgage, and so on. I was ready for that. What I didn't know was that George Soros was at that time, 1992, in the middle of a speculation against the Irish pound. And we, we battled for three months not to devalue the pound. Do you remember that? 
yeah, my yeah. first mortgage payment was 700. My second mortgage payment was 850. And my third mortgage payment was 1100. Interest rates went back up to 21 or damn close to 21% because of that currency crisis, very short-term currency crisis, thanks be to God. I didn't have enough money in my bank to make my third payment and it took me two and a half years to catch up with that. Um, and if, if it had gone up one more time, I'd have lost my house um, uh, there and then. But that's the kind of thing that can happen. Now, that was a, a one-off and it was a very peculiar uh, thing that happened. Unfortunately, I, I was, I'd just been appointed, that was the start of the um, Albert Reynolds, Dick Spring, Bertie Ahern government. And I was one of the spokespeople who had to go out day after day after day and say we will never devalue the pound while watching the pre- my interest rate on my mortgage going up through the roof. Um, uh, and I, in the end, I was very relieved when they did devalue the pound. Yeah, I, your, your, your book, Snakes and Ladders, And we can't, do that, ladders, now. We can't do that now, that's our yeah. friend. Snakes and Ladders, that was the name of the book you wrote about it that was, time, wasn't it? Was, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. It was a really informative and entertaining read, I have to say. Um, one other thing that strikes me there when you say that, Fergus, and your experience as a, a younger, if we put it that way, person at the time, the generational divide, I would suspect, facing into this thing is far greater than it even was back then in terms of the, you know, the house prices, more precarious employment, etc., that type of thing. I, I'd suspect things are worse in that regard this time around. I think house prices are a huge issue now, an enormous issue. And if mortgage rates start going up at all, um, the fear that will accompany that will be, will be immense. In some ways, I think... We we may be a little bit luckier. Um, I I think the older generation now, of which I'm one, is perhaps in a slightly better position to help out uh, in in small ways. In some certainly in my case, it'll be in small ways. If if kids are getting into you know temporary financial difficulties, I mean, there was no possibility whatsoever um, of my turning around to my father in 1973 and looking for a, a dig out because I couldn't buy my kids shoes. They, like he was as broke as I was. Um, I, I, I do think my generation um, of, let's say, pensioners, for want of a better word, uh, we've come through COVID. Um, and, you know, there was some devastation in COVID, some awful devastation in COVID. But one of the funny things that happened was that an awful lot of people saved an awful lot of money during COVID. You had no way of spending it and so on. So, you know, there is a little bit of money in the bank to help uh, kids and grandkids and all that. Not a huge amount, I'd say. Uh, so and and that's something, but it, none of that will cushion anybody against mortgage interest increases. If mortgages start to go up, I think there will be riots in the streets. To be honest, as you said you, when you referenced that time about the the, the CSO report, and it was nineteen eighty four, and, and as I understand, you're saying yes, that that was the last time, but we were actually coming out of something. Yes. Then, how did you come out of it? And in terms of what, what the government can do within its power, and and how do you think that might be replicated today? Ireland came out of that one through a, a series of national agreements which little by little moderated pay and got prices back down. Little by little. It didn't happen overnight. But it happened by social partnership, I think was the term that was used. It happened by governments and uh, trade unions and farmers and employers all sitting down together. Uh, we're not doing that at the moment. Um, I, I don't know whether we're not doing it for ideological reasons or for some other reason, but we're not doing it. Um, and I think that there ought to be uh, at least the beginnings of a much more intensive dialogue around the economic uh, solutions that we need. It has to be 
It has to be shared. It ain't going to happen unless it's shared. And you, you, I think if you look at what's happening in the UK today, that's what, what happens if there isn't a, a, you know, an agreed approach and an openness to dialogue. And that brings us back to where we started and your, um, I think, very interesting comment that this all has to be done together in some form or another. Yeah. And I just wonder in terms of the, the type of divisions that are there in politics, perhaps to some extent in wider society, is that going to be more difficult than it was back when you were sitting there um, behind the scenes in the government? I think it probably is. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to make political points or score political points, but my, my hunch is that if you say to Michal Martin, Michal, you know, we need a national sit down and around the table around this, he'd be okay with that. If you say it to Leo Varadkar, I think you'd have to nearly beat him into the room. Um, I don't know why that. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that to kind of score a point off him. Now, yeah. he is going to be Taoiseach before Christmas, I think. And I think he is going to have to face the hardest wave of this. I think next winter is going to be brutally difficult for thousands and thousands of families. And it's going to happen at a time when resources are beginning to slow down. You know, they're not, we're not going to have lashings of cash um, uh, this time next year um, to, to, you know, to wave magic wands at the problem. So I, I think Leo is going to have to kind of have a long, hard look at how he needs to approach it. Now, I, you know, I could write a political column about that, but I won't maybe on this occasion. I mean, I, I, hope, they, I hope they succeed. That's, I want them to succeed. I don't want them to screw it up. Yeah, it would strike me. I just... On the political side of it, briefly, it would strike me, Leo Varadkar, in terms of positioning Fine Gael as things now are, uh, they're certainly not, well, I suppose to some extent they're they're much the same size in terms of their representation as they were back then. But perhaps he would consider their, he'd be more focused in considering what constitutes their electorate and those would tend to be, not exclusively, but would tend to be more better off people. And does that then feed into um, where he's willing to go with things? It may do, it may do. But if that is the case, I think he's making a fundamental miscalculation. I think anyone, I, I think the, if, if, if mortgage rates start to go up and that generates fear, the parties that are in government now will be wiped out by that fear. They will be wiped out. If they cannot address the anxiety around mortgage rates, that's a, that's a once in a generation thing. I, 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 I would be absolutely certain if the first time some, you know, fella and his wife who have 80 grand between them, a girl and her partner who have 80 grand between them and they have two decent half decent tech jobs and they have 80, 90 grand between them and they're in a 350,000 euro um, house in some suburb of Dublin and the bank, and they can't make the bank payments. The first time that happens, we're at the beginnings of a major political crisis. And it wouldn't take much because everyone I know in, of that generation is borrowed up to the armpits, not just to the elbows, to the armpits to try and keep, uh, try and do that. Finally, Fergus, in terms of your experience, what you've seen, um, is there an upside? Is there a an outcome that's not as bleak as some are predicting? I, I think in the short term, it's going to be very bleak, Mick. I think the next winter is going to be very bleak. I think there are, we, we've been talking, if you like, we've been talking about middle class young people. 
But there are thousands and thousands and thousands of mums out there who are terrified about not having enough to feed their children, who are terrified about not, having, not being able to heat their houses. And, and, and I think they're going to have, there's an entire generation that's going to have a really, really, really difficult winter. Now, if the government can get its act together sufficiently to try and alleviate that and help them, um, then there's hope for us all. Um, if they screw, if they if they can't, if they decide, but you know the the kind of point you were making a minute ago, if somebody decides, well, they're not my constituency, um, then then it's you know social disaster uh, around the corner. Okay, well, let's hope for the best. Let's hope the brighter prospect is going to come true and that's all we can do for the moment Fergus thank you very much for joining us today Fergus it's been a pleasure I hope I I feel I've been utterly and completely depressing and I didn't mean to be no I think Um, I think you've been realistic I think to be honest with you you've shown where the possibilities lie and all we can hope is that those in power can recognise that as well basically well keep your fingers crossed Mick Fergus thank you that's it for today folks thanks also to our engineer as always JJ Vernon thank you for listening Stay tuned and as they say, we'll do it all again next week.